0: We'll be talking about the impact of gun violence in this podcast. If this is a difficult topic for you, please take care when listening.
1: I was in my dorm room, so I was frantic trying to call home to see if my brother, what was going on with him, and he had for some reason gone home that day for lunch to call my dad. And then drove back. So he went to go park at Clement Park and then walked up to the school and then saw all the kids running and screaming and bloody. And then the cops came and then made like secured the area so they couldn't leave. I couldn't get a hold of them for hours, couldn't get a hold of my family. It was just like a constant busy signal, busy signal. And so then I just decided to drive down and yeah, it was awful. Just Watching on the news your school and then having newscasters say oh people were walking up the stairs and doing this and the library is here and you're like no actually that's not the way the school is set up yeah. and you don't know what you're talking about. And it's really ever since that moment it's made me really <laughs> not trust the news and the way things are represented.
2: My name Is Amy over? And this is Confronting Columbine.
3: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
0: I'm Nancy Glass with Amy Over.
2: Nancy, today's episode is so special to me. It's all about my coach Dave Sanders. And we brought the girls from my high school basketball team together to share memories. So some of my high school hijinks are going to be exposed.
0: Yes, they are. (laughs) Uh, But we're also going to find out why Coach Sanders was so special.
2: Yes, we're talking to his daughter, Connie. I was surprised to
0: hear that she actually introduced you to one of the perpetrator's mothers.
2: She did. uh, And it gets really interesting.
0: Well, let's meet your team.
2: I'm Jessica Trainer. I am Christy Davis. Megan Henkin.
4: I'm Kara Sokup.
2: I, I won't say your nickname, Jesse.
4: <laughs> yeah, thanks.
2: Just
5: say it. You loved it. You called me that all the time. <laughs> I call, you okay, still call me I that. call her
2: D.B. Walling and it was Dirty Butt Walling.
5: It's your fault. And it was a, a
2: wonderful term of endearment for me through high school. It was awesome. <laughs> Guys, thanks so much for being here today. And it's so good to see you. I want to talk about what Columbine was like before April 20th, 1999, because I spent a lot of time with you all. Most of high school, we all went by our last names. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, really That's why it was important to say that. <laughs> yeah, and especially Coach Sanders would just yell, Evans! <laughs> <laughs> <Gisella> <laughs> <me>. <laughs> he, was, yeah. he was the best. His motto was run, gun, and have some fun. We went to basketball camps together at the University of Wyoming. Which was super fun. Who gave Kara does somebody give out your phone number? Yeah, Megan. <laughs> yeah. Megan, you're the culprit behind everything right
4: now. <laughs> you guys thought it'd be hilarious to give my number to some cause the football camp was always going on too. So then they kept calling my room all night and then Macaulay was like, No boys! <laughs> Who's calling you? <laughs> I'm like, I didn't do it. I didn't do She it. didn't like me, and then she thought I was giving my number out.
2: And we always had sleepovers at like one of your guys' houses, and we watched Tommy Boy yeah. like <sighs> all the time. And you guys got me drunk a lot.
4: What? Do you remember when you threw the burrito in the car, in the <laughs> Chatfield kids' car? No. So we got to talk about, we're driving, and we had to stop, and these kids from Chatfield are next to us just screaming at us. And we're yelling at them. They're like, you guys are lasers, And they threw like a water bottle on <laughs> our car door or something, and you just rolled in your window. You had a full bean burrito, and you just go. And we we're taking off, and the way you threw it made it into their window. It like hit the driver in his face, and it's like exploded. And their car like veered off, and we we're like, go! And Laura <laughs> is driving like crazy. And we had to like pull over, because we were laughing so hard. And you were like, yes! We gotta go to Wadsworth, I need another burrito. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I probably was hungry. I love to it eat. It was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I remember just a lot of driving around, a lot of laughing our asses off. Mm-hmm. And we all were pretty darn good at hoops and had a good time. Yeah, Do you guys remember your number? 23, 42. 32. I think I was 20. Well, we were talking earlier about
1: Coach Sanders, and now I'm going to get it, but. Yeah. He's the reason so many of us played. Yeah, And he made it a point to take you aside after every game. And then he would just praise you. And then even if you made a mistake, here's why it was okay. Super
2: encouraging. He was a special person.
4: Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was just loving and understanding and knew how to motivate you in a positive way.
2: And push you when you needed, needed to it. be pushed. Yeah, because we're teenagers and we think we know everything. was just, like, the best guy. Well, I feel like maybe we should talk about the pink elephant in the room. Like, <laughs> Well, Megan and, and Kara, like, where were you the day that you heard of things going down at Columbine? My college dorm room.
4: I was home getting ready to leave, and my boyfriend at the time, whose whole family are police officers, called me. And said something was happening. It's awful just to like think and wait and just watching on the news.
5: I was in art class, so I was upstairs on the other end of the building, next to the principal's off office, the offices. And so the fire alarm went off, and Mr. D actually ran to our door because there was a, there was a door going outside okay. from the art room. And he, I remember him grabbing my shoulder and saying like, "You need to get out. This isn't a." This isn't a drill. And we walked out and turned around to look for smoke. And, uh, and that's when we saw everybody running and crying. And so we went to Clement Park and waited and watched the SWAT teams pull up. And I remember saying like, this is crazy. Like, why is the SWAT team here? Like something huge is probably happening somewhere else. I mean, we had no idea, no idea. Because we were at the opposite end of the building and the teachers told us to just walk home or go somewhere. And my parents lived right behind the school, but we didn't want to walk to my house because we're like, what if there are people in there shooting and they get out and start running around my neighborhood? And Kelly's dad at that point had pulled up, and he's like, he knew she was safe, and so he took me, and we went to try and find my parents. And at that time, our triage was at Leewood Elementary School. But trying to get there with all the road closures... I mean, we ended up parking in somebody's driveway and running there. And I remember just walking around seeing people and how ironic it was that we were in my old elementary school and that this was happening. And meeting up with uh, my neighbors who we were really close with and they couldn't find their kids because they were in the library and in the teacher's lounge. And um, So my parents finally were there. And we went home and we had like 55 messages on our answering machine. And we were watching the, you know, answering machine. <laughs> back it's like way back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we were watching the TV, you know, in awe. And my parents turned it off and they took me to Park Meadows Mall and we walked around. They had no idea what to do with me. And we walked around the mall and I was like, None of these people shopping at the mall, no, like what just happened to me? And then we ate at the Chick fil A right there because they had no idea what to do. I mean, yeah, they just didn't want you to watch the news, but they didn't want to be at home with all the phone calls and the TV,
1: yeah,
2: they just got you out. I mean, I think that's pretty amazing protective factor. (laughs) Like, they they were just like wanted to keep you protected, yeah.
5: Yeah, And at that time, after we got home at like nine o'clock at night, my brother and sister had come down because they were at CSU, yeah, at the time. So they had come down. I remember feeling so lost. Like, I didn't know how to feel. Mm -hmm. Um, Just laying in my bed crying. I felt really alone. And I know I wasn't, but that's how I felt. Yeah. You know, hearing about you guys being all together. I kind of had the opposite. But um, Jen Evans and Jesse Newberry came over, I remember, to check on me. Oh. (laughs) Oh,
2: The hardest part was finding out like where were you guys when you found out it was coach? That night. Yeah. That night. I feel like I was with you, Christy. Yeah,
6: we all we all went together. We went to someone's house. We were at Amber's. Yeah. We went over there and we all stayed the night. And I remember my parents saying for like days we didn't want to come home and we didn't want to leave one we another. Didn't leave. I think we stayed at her mm-hmm. house for a couple days. Yeah. He's like, we couldn't get you to come home. You just, no. all of you girls were together. and, and we're all, It was all at embers.
1: His funeral was hard too. I was with you.
2: Part of me wishes I wouldn't have looked at that casket. Yeah. I know. That was, I remember being in line with you and you and I both were like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this.
4: Well, it's also one of the first funerals really that we had ever gone to Mm -hmm. and to have it be someone that was so instrumental in our lives and positive and to see somebody in a casket that you loved at 19 years old was super traumatic for me yeah I remember looking over at his family I know and his wife and his daughters and just That was the first time in my life I had ever seen real emotion. And the crying was so hard that it sounded like people were laughing. And I kept looking up, being like, who is laughing? And then realizing that they were just sobbing so hard. And it was just seeing all of these people that, kids, so many of his athletes it was a lot to take in.
2: It was probably one of like, will go down as, like, one of the hardest days ever.
4: hmm
2: Maybe it is one of those reasons that, you know, 20 years
1: I've found a way to compartmentalize, right? Yeah. You get this reaction from people when they ask. I mean, it's like a normal thing. You ask people when you start a job or you meet somebody, where'd you grow up? Like, you know, you say, I grew up in Littleton, Colorado. And then they're like, oh, you know, and then you say Columbine, and they immediately apologize, yeah. have questions, and get really uncomfortable. So it's like you have to invite the conversation and allow them to ask some questions, but I've almost come up with my mm-hmm. shtick, right? Yeah. Like, here's, what, have have to. To. here's yeah. what I'm willing to share with you. What here's sure. what my experience is like, period. And I never bring up that funeral. Like, And I think yeah. that's probably why I'm getting so... Yeah. Like, that
2: is not part of it. Yeah, I haven't talked about the funeral either. I said then I was like, I'm done playing basketball. Like, I'm never gonna touch a basketball again. And I didn't touch a basketball for a long time. But now I, lo- I, I still love to play and I coach my son's basketball team and he hated basketball. But like, <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna be your coach. <laughs> you know, a part of my love and my passion died that day. And I was just mad. I just, yeah. like, I was so mad. Because something was taken away
1: from you? My sense of safety, safety was yeah.
2: gone. Mm-hmm. It's hard to think about
1: now, like, having children.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, I didn't even let my daughter play with water guns until two years ago. Which is
5: yeah. silly. No, You know, it's I realize not. that now, but, but it's one of the struggles that we go through, especially after that should our sons be you know playing
2: sticks (laughs) have any of your children asked about like what happened to you guys or why do we do mass shooting drills and have you kind of like made the connection with Columbine or are you not sharing that yet yeah I think it's the spectrum right I mean Christy's pretty
6: open with her girls yeah, I think maybe just working in the schools and having other close calls and other guns brought to schools and having other things like it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of like when. I mean, it's 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 going to happen. Unfortunately, it's going to continue. So I'm very open and upfront and honest with my girls. They know like my exact in the classroom and how I got out of the classroom, the gunshots and the bombs, but they know I was there. They know my classmates were killed. They know they practice the drills to take it very serious. It's not a field trip to McDonald's, like that is if someone comes in the school, you listen to your teacher, they are bad people, they're coming in. So, we, I, I don't shield them from much. I mean, it's heartbreaking, you know.
1: Amy and I have kids the same age. You know, Mason and Bailey are very close friends and they've been in the same class since first grade. And it's hard it's really to hurting. hear her talk about what she does. You know that she's supposed to run if she's in the hallway run to the bathroom and put your feet up on the toilet and make sure nobody knows that you're in there and you have to be super quiet and you're not allowed to say anything i mean that's terrible right um but to her she says it just so matter-of-factly which i guess is like good thing right where she feels prepared if the situation does happen but for me it just feels really gross that she has to even think about that and then you think you know even selecting this school right because we open enroll I did have apprehensions because the first classrooms that are by the front door are the kindergarten classrooms so I'm like okay well if something happens that's where they're gonna go first how comfortable am I with that
2: how was it like the first day that you guys dropped your kids off at school oh my gosh awful it was a hot mess
4: So, Quinley just started kindergarten, so last year when we had that lady that came to Colorado that was talking about Columbine and wanting to kill people, then I dropped her up at daycare. On April 17,
0: 2018, an 18-year-old woman obsessed with the Columbine murders flew from Miami to Denver and bought a shotgun. She threatened violence, causing schools around the Denver area, including Columbine, to close as a precaution. It was just a few days before the anniversary of the massacre. The next day, her body was discovered in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains outside of Denver. She died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound.
4: And I said, what? I know we're f- far enough away from the mountains where they thought she was hiding, but I'm like, what kind of precautions are you taking? You're just going to lock the doors and thinking that was it, There's so little. And she said, no, we're actually going to go through drills today. and..." I just started bawling. And I go, sorry, I, I'm kind of overreacting with this. I did go to Columbine, so it's sensitive subject. And then when Quinn came home, we talked about it. And then I went and hid in my closet and cried. <laughs>
5: <sighs> it's messed up and I don't do it as much, but when my kids started school, I would say goodbye to them every day. Like it was the last time. Yeah. So I would make sure the mornings went like perfectly. Yeah. Which is really, you know, not <laughs> reality, <laughs> especially with little kids. <laughs> but I would at least want to say good, have a, like, goodbye on a positive yeah. note, yeah. you
6: know, before they went to school. My sophomore year of college, it, that's when everything hit me. So I was getting done with basketball workouts and I just was not okay and was not functioning. So I drove down to Littleton every week and did EMDR and did a lot of therapy and a lot of counseling.
0: Almost every survivor you'll hear from in this series has had a type of therapy called EMDR, short for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. EMDR has been proven to heal the mind from psychological trauma, and many trauma survivors credit EMDR with saving their lives.
2: I remember the one thing my mom did for me one night The first night is she held me in bed, like, and snuggled with me. And after
5: something like that happens, I mean, they didn't want me to watch the news or to read the newspaper. And they wanted to really kind of keep me from it. And in hindsight, I kind of wish we would have talked about it a little Mm -hmm. more. A lot more. You know, it's taken, I think, all of us. And you really have helped me with that as far as, like, survivor's guilt. I always felt that since I wasn't. Around the shootings, I didn't even hear the shootings. I got out of the building really quickly. That I shouldn't really be grieving. Oh, honey. I don't. Yeah. And 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 they just were kind of on the thinking that like go off to college, start your life,
2: don't let get friends. Yeah, don't let this,
5: which is so true, you know. But at the same time, you have to kind of face reality. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's a pretty
5: traumatic reckoning, right? Yeah, Yeah.
2: it is. (laughs) I remember feeling guilty that I shielded myself with my peers when I was running out of the school. I felt tremendous guilt that I was trying so hard to get myself into a group so I wouldn't wouldn't die. The survivor's guilt is such an awful Feeling and it doesn't it doesn't go, I mean, it gets better as time passes, but it's still there well in the way that we were all kind of portrayed, I think
1: our class, like the class of ninety eight that we were like all these bullies and we were these mean jobs you know mean people yeah. that created like this environment where it was justified for this terrible behavior, right when it's like yeah, you know, I'm pretty sure in every school there's, you've got your handful of bullies and you've got your handful of outsiders or however they view themselves. But my recollection of these group of boys is that they hung out at the smoker's pit or underneath the the stairs. stairs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) stairs I mean, and like, I don't remember really anybody engaging with them.
4: No. Right? I actually remember them being mean to a lot of us.
1: So then, you know, I'm like, what did I not... I mean, I know I tend to be sometimes a little bit oblivious and just, but like, what did I not see Mm -hmm. that
2: that clearly the media and everybody else is seeing? I don't know, I had just a great time with you guys growing up and I mean, (laughs) it was just fun. Yeah. I had a really good high school experience and one really hard day, you know? I'm sure I had hard days, but one really hard, hard day
0: Amy, when was the last time you got together with your basketball teammates and had this type of discussion?
2: We all went off to college, so we didn't really talk about it. And we all kind of went our separate ways. And I think that was kind of the way that we coped with things. We acted like Columbine didn't happen.
0: I guess that's the way that you coped in those days. But in the moment, almost every person you spoke to, their first reaction was, oh, this isn't real. This is not happening.
2: I thought it was a fight outside. I had it in my mind that it was like two guys fighting or something, and I had no idea it was this plan, this horrible, evil plan.
0: And it's very interesting that all of you have the same reaction to sending your kids to school. And you can certainly understand,
2: you know, that reaction and the fear. It's still present. It's still there. And I haven't had to worry about it this year because of the pandemic. I've had my kids on Zooms and they're at home in their beds doing their schoolwork. So
0: not surprisingly, the experience of Columbine has affected everybody's parenting. Some people even picked a preschool based on how close the classroom is to the front door, right?
2: Absolutely. And I know exactly how Megan felt because that was my first thought too, is that if someone's going to come in shooting, they're gonna come to the kindergarten classrooms, and you know, and then my mind goes to Sandy Hook. And to be honest, like when I chose both of my kids' preschools, I chose it because there is a fire station right across the street. Wow. So I felt that they were going to be safe or that emergency medical, there are safe people around. Working with Sean Graves, knowing all the school safety that is happening here in Colorado, I do feel a sense of safety. And that they're doing what they need to be doing to keep our kids safe. I'm proud of the systems in place. I think they're doing their job to keep our kids safe. And I know my teachers would die for my children. Wow. I know they would. These school safety measures that they have in place are there for a reason. And like Christy said in the interview, she talks to her kids about that candidly and openly and to take it seriously. And my kids take them seriously, too.
0: Now we're going to hear your conversation with your coach's daughter, Connie Sanders.
7: This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's n-o-o-m.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? (laughs) Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
8: I had just had a baby when Columbine happened. My second daughter was seven months old and he was insistent that I get married to the dad. I think he wanted to have a traditional type of family and he was just like the ultimate grandpa. And no matter how terrible we were as teenagers, like I think teaching all those years at Columbine really helped him be
2: well-rounded in how to deal with bratty girls. (laughs) Yes, he (laughs) definitely had one bratty girl on his team, and that was me. (laughs) I mean, he was so kind always to me, so kind. But he would definitely put me in my place and tell me the look look, and then bench me. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would would come up to him after the game and why would you bench me, coach? And he's like, Amy, come on, you can do better. You know, show me, prove to me yeah.
8: that you can do better. My sisters and I, none of us were mastering life in general. And he wasn't like somebody of many words, but he was still expressive, like in a weird way. Like you, you knew how he felt.
0: Amy knew how to read Coach Sanders after spending so much time on the basketball court with him. On the day of the Columbine massacre, Amy was frozen unsure of what to do when all the chaos started. No one knew if the sounds of gunshots were paintballs or maybe part of a senior prank. But when Coach Sanders appeared at the entrance to the cafeteria, Amy took one look at him and knew it was a real life or
2: death situation. That day when I saw him at Columbine on April 20th, that serious look, that saved my life. I knew that it was time to run and he saved my life. I think that's the
8: odd thing about this level of trauma, though. You're talking about that, and that was
2: 7,828 days ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you're on it. You remember a look. I remember that look. Right. And I will never forget that look. Connie, you know I loved your dad, but I would love to know something that we never knew about him at school. He
8: loved to dress up. He loved to dance. He loved Days of Our Lives, his miniature poodle, and rum and cokes. I mean, (laughs) you know, when everybody's like, hero coach Sanders, it's like, okay.
2: You never think of your coaches or your teachers as like human beings, normal people. Like they go to the grocery store and they have Uh, families. You didn't know
8: he was going home to watch Days of Our Lives on a VHS tape and cuddle with his poodle, drinking a rum and coke. He was just, he was real.
0: Coach Sanders, Connie's father, was in the hallway at Columbine when he was shot multiple times. Students pulled him into a science classroom to try and save him. They were trapped there for three hours. They talked to him, showed him pictures, used tourniquets to try and stop the bleeding, and they alerted authorities that he desperately needed emergency medical care. Coach Sanders had three daughters, as he lay dying, he left one final message, tell my girls I love them.
8: The last time I saw him was the Tuesday before when he died. He said, tell my girls I love them. And that mm-hmm. was like, the girls thing could have been you. It could have been us. It could have been mom. It could have been, I mean, it was just a generalized term. And I used to watch how he'd kind of like put his arm around you and like yeah. pat you on the arm. and. Usually that's what he did, but he walked me out to the car and he hugged me and it was so awkward because he just wasn't like a full on like yeah, hugger. hugger. Yeah. And I remember getting into my car and it was just so weird to think that that was the last time I saw him. And of course, the, you know, then we come up on the, like I'm cleaning and I realized I never gave him the Father's Day card that I bought. Little things like that, the things that are normal
2: that are no longer normal on April 20th. When did you find out that he was like missing?
8: So I was working downtown in the Denver Post building. I got up from my desk and I walked by my boss's office and he had a TV in there and he said something about stupid kids at Columbine, at least that's what I thought I heard. And I peeked my head in and I said, my dad teaches there, what are you talking about? And everybody turned white. And they pushed me, literally pushed me out of the office and slammed the door. So I'm standing there and I'm thinking, what is wrong with these people?
2: (laughs) Yeah, like what's going on? Like
8: I just got shoved at work. (laughs) Then somebody came out and they took me into a spare office and they said, you need to call your mom. There's a hostage situation at Columbine. Back then, call waiting was an option and she didn't like to be interrupted. So I kept getting a busy signal. (laughs) And so finally, after like an hour of trying to call, at one point she picked up, but she hung up as soon as I said something. What I didn't know was that she was waiting for him to call. So she was hanging up on anybody that wasn't him. So they get this lady to drive me home. We're driving down Wadsworth and it's weird because like there are helicopters circling and fire trucks and there were cars parked in the middle of the road. It was very like apocalyptic almost like, people wandering around dazed in the street and we get to my mom's house there's a car parked up like almost on the lawn so I walk into the house and everybody is on their knees dad had just bought this big screen television so he could watch the Rockies games and everybody was on their knees in front of it like right in front of it and silent absolutely silent And then the helicopter zoomed in on the one bleeding to death sign. And my mom lost it. She was like that poor student, that poor student. I just, I can't, I can't even imagine that poor student. We had no idea it was about him. By this point, it's probably about two o'clock in the afternoon, shooting happened around 11, 11.30. And we got a call from somebody that said he'd been shot in the ankle. And I kept thinking, ooh, he's gonna be pissed. They said he went to Swedish. So the whole family, we get into our cars, we drive down to Swedish. And this is right about the time that HIPAA rights came into play. So the chaplain at the hospital is not protected by HIPAA. So they had the chaplain come in and tell us, he's not here. And my mom thought they were lying. She's screaming, why don't you let me see my husband? My sister Angela and I went and broke into the helicopter communications room, shoved ourselves into the room, and asked them if they had any idea where he was helicoptered to or if he was transported. And they said, we don't see anything on our list, nothing. Wow. Then we were told to go to Leewood Elementary. By this point, it's like 4 or 5 in the afternoon. I went up to one of the news people and I said, does anybody know where teachers are? I'm trying to find my dad. And he said, we're busy trying to find students. Oh. And I hit him. I literally hit him. That's like the first time in my life I ever hit anybody. Good. I'm glad Um, you hit him. Yeah. He wasn't happy about it, but the cop was like, I didn't see nothing. (laughs) So anyway, I had no idea all the people that we were looking at were going to be people that we were going to know forever. It was the other 13 families. So they asked for his dental records and they asked my mom what he was wearing. And I thought it was odd because she knew exactly what he was wearing. And she described what he wore to a T. and I said, how do you know that? And she said, because we got in a fight last night and I didn't kiss him goodbye. I just watched him leave from the window. So. They sent a couple of victims advocates home, which really upset my mom because she hadn't cleaned the house. (laughs) She was not prepared for company. (laughs) She was very upset about this and Every time the phone rang, Mom would pick it up and she'd just slam it down. And then we got a call from the Rocky Mountain News. Your husband's been shot dead. Do you have a comment? Oh my gosh. That's how we found out. But of course, Mom was like, he's hiding under a desk. He's, and I think everybody knew, like, he was definitely not going to be the one that was hiding under a desk. But it wasn't until the next day that the victim's advocates called a family meeting and said that everybody needed to be there and they came and had mom identify him, which I think was a really shitty thing to do given that he died with his wallet in his pocket. We know it's him. You know it's him. We were talking to news media on the front porch, not knowing that most people cover up their address because crazy people like, Oh yeah. I mean, suddenly all of these news vans were like blocking off mom's street. The Associated Press, somebody stole our family photos off the walls. We found them like published later in all of these places. And I mean, it was just so violating the whole thing,
1: yeah.
2: the whole thing. <sighs> I just needed to take a moment. You're okay. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm sorry. I love you. I love you too. (laughs) How is your mom doing? I don't want to talk about that. Okay. Yeah.
8: With kids trying to staunch the bleeding, and they put a whiteboard in the window that said one bleeding to death to try to get people to come to that science room. And the helicopters zoomed in on it, and it's just, it's still so surreal to think that they wrote that because of him. in that room, he was bleeding to death. A couple of the boys were Boy Scouts, and like that was the other thing when we were on our knees watching TV, lots of kids came out without their shirts on. They had used their shirts to try to stop his bleeding. They didn't know that he had a bullet wound here, and he had one that went like behind his ear and came out his mouth. And so they were like trying to stop the bleeding here, but they didn't know that there was another wound My mom and my sister were pissed. They sued Jefferson County and won, which was really hard because we were the only family where it moved forward because he was the only one that could have been saved. Everybody else was Mm -hmm. killed fairly quickly.
2: How did you feel about that? You weren't a part of the lawsuit?
8: I really felt like they did the best they could. Like, they wanted to Mm -hmm. save people. Nobody goes into law enforcement or to be a firefighter to not do the best they can. And so I think ultimately people just not knowing what to do. It's always easy to Monday morning quarterback and say, oh, well they should have done this and that. But people don't realize what chaos ensues in a mass shooting. Until you've been through one, you don't know where you'd hide or what you'd do, and and everybody responds differently. Some people run, some people freeze. It's the chaos of it that people didn't understand. Yes, I was pissed. Should he have laid their bleeding to death for over three hours? absolutely fucking not but do i think that any one person ultimately made a mistake i don't know i mean the sheriff at the time i forget his name and that's sheriff probably Stone. oh yeah that was on purpose but now i yeah. remember um, <laughs> yeah but he had actually i think there was a concern where he had actually said he's probably already gone keep moving or something there was some kind of a communication that somebody made that shouldn't have like it was an assumption that he's probably already dead when he wasn't
0: jefferson county sheriff stone was widely criticized in the days after the columbine massacre he overestimated the casualties for example reporting that 25 people were killed he also erroneously said there were other accomplices in the murders and despite a sign telling first responders that Dave Sanders was in need of critical care, he was the last person rescued.
8: That bargaining piece of me is yeah. like what his life would have looked like had he survived those injuries and it wasn't good. Okay. And so there's a piece of me that says, I'm glad that he didn't have to suffer longer
2: thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Hold on, let me gather my thoughts. I'm sorry. He he clearly just moved to mowing the front yard. Yes. Yeah, we need to move inside.
7: Every day is a great day when you're not worrying about your appliances and home systems. And that's what you get with an American Home Shield warranty. With American Home Shield, you can protect your home and wallet from unexpected breakdowns like leaky faucets or faulty water heaters or wonky thermostats. Now that's something to celebrate. When it comes to protecting your appliances and home systems, don't worry, be warranty. For 20% off plans, go to ahs.com slash Wondery. For more details, See AHS.com slash contracts for coverage details, including limit amounts, fees, limitations, and exclusions.
2: Okay, so we moved inside. We were enjoying a nice Colorado day, but the guy next door started mowing his lawn. Okay, that's better. You know, Connie, I've gone back to Columbine several times to retrace my steps and to reconnect with people there. Have you ever gone back to Columbine since your father's murder?
8: For years, they only opened Columbine on April 20th to survivors and victims and alumni. And I had never gone. And I guess I felt like there was something wrong with me because I just like internally hadn't started healing. Mm -hmm. But I decided to go. And so I show up, and they're like, who are you? And so I'm explaining it. And I said, I want to go to the closet where he died. And the janitor comes up with all of his keys. And I was like, I want to go in the closet where my dad died. And he said, well, what closet is that? And I said, well, it's the science closet. And he said, you don't want to do that. (laughs) And I said, but I do want to do that. And he was kind of pissing me off. Like, this is my epiphany. I get to have it. He said, you just don't? And I said, no, I do. And he was like, all right, but don't say I didn't warn you. We go into the room. He jangles his keys, and he opens it up, and he turns and walks away. And I step into this closet that's full of shit. And the first thing I see is a skeleton. (laughs) It is the biology skeleton. And I'm like... Okay, well, this is an interesting healing moment. I'm going to do this. And so I sit down on the floor, just waiting to get hit with this, you're healed, you know, kind of moment. Like any minute now, I'm going to feel better in my mind, trying to conjure up like all this stuff. And I'm looking at the skeleton and I was like, (laughs) Dad, you did this. You did this. I'm in here with a skeleton in a closet that you died in. And I was like, I gotta get out of here. So I stand up and it's like wobbly arms. One of the hands gets stuck in my sweater. I opened up the door and I went to walk out and something brushed the back of my shoulder like something sharp, and it scared the shit out of me. So I went running out of the closet and it was attached to my sweater. And so I ran through the hall of Columbine High School followed by a skeleton from the science closet (laughs) and ran right past the janitor that just stood there like staring at me, shaking his head. And I was like, get it off. Get it off of me. This is not funny. And you you had your moment. (laughs) I was like, well, there it is, because I've always gone towards this healing through humor. And I think that the universe, or dad, or whatever you want to call
2: it, just keeps throwing me these, like, softballs. One of the funny things that you talk about a lot is some of the ridiculous stuff that you got right after Columbine. And we all got very thoughtful gifts and uh, you know we got some well, these thoughtful were thoughtful gifts, but we also got some like pretty weird stuff so what was like the weirdest thing that you with our address
8: being posted because we did these interviews on the front porch without knowing you know anything about being suddenly famous there was a big delivery truck from albertson's that pulled up and they started unloading pallets of stuff into the garage oh Um okay and the first thing that happens with this type of chaos is you lose your appetite. And we're looking at what Albertsons donated. And there's an entire palette of Snapple. Great. Snapple's good. An entire palette of sun chips, which if I never eat another sun chip again, I will be fulfilled. And a palette of tampons. He said, tell my girls I love them. Maybe they thought there were a lot more of us. Like, maybe they wanted us to give these out at the softball game as consolation. What did you do with
2: the whole pallet of tampons?
8: Well, so we put them back by the grill, but then there was a leak, and the tampon boxes expanded, (laughs) and it was really scary when the plastic burst open.
2: Oh, my gosh. They
8: were by the grill. (laughs)
2: Oh my gosh, my face hurts because I'm laughing so
5: hard. (laughs) Yeah, we we got some random stuff.
8: Several people painted him, which is very kind. People don't do well with eyes. They just don't. Like, you have to be a real pro to not make eyes in a painted portrait downright creepy. And of course, my mom did not want to offend anyone, so everything people sent us went up somewhere. And she put the portrait of him in the bathroom, which was really disturbing because you're sitting there going potty and he's like staring one eye down at you and the other one at the ceiling. So it was like a shrine. We got soap from David Arquette. When the dust settled, did you figure out what you wanted to do with the rest of your life? I just couldn't get my mind off of it. So when I went back to school and started taking forensic psychology classes like criminal thinking, the criminal mind, the criminal process, um, they had been in trouble. The Columbine shooters? Yeah. They were on a diversion program in Jefferson County for breaking into a van. And they had taken anger management and done therapy.
0: Connie went back to school and completed a master's degree in psychology. An internship introduced her to a job she never
8: expected to love. We work with people who commit violent crime and it turns out, this whole time, all of the education, that I had no idea that it was going to point me in a direction like that. Being able to look at people and say, I don't think you're dangerous, I think you're hurting. And I think that there's something within you that needs to be resolved and I wanna help you get there. And if you don't get there, you're going back to jail or you're going back to prison. There will be consequences. This is not everybody gets a hug. You have to work hard. You have to figure out where your life took that turn, but you are not an offender. You are someone who committed an offense. I was so fascinated by these abnormal psychology classes because it explained a whole lot about my life and about the boys that murdered dad.
2: Your dad was a leader and a mentor. Did it ever occur to you that you kind of been following in his footsteps? It
8: occurred to me a couple of years ago, somebody called me coach. It occurred to me that I'm coaching them. Like I am helping them find that path. You know, I'm telling them, go do your best and come back and see me next week. And so in a way, it's really important to me that this is my legacy to honor him is to help people move past the criminal offense that they've committed. And not everybody's up to the task. There are bad people in the world. There's not hope for everyone. But I think that it is important to me that people see me as a support, like his students saw him as a support.
2: You have a close relationship with Sue Klebold. Can you explain the roots of that relationship and what you want people to know about families of violent offenders. Sue
0: Klebold is the mother of one of the killers and the only parent to have spoken publicly.
8: So I'd prefer to say it like families of people who commit crime. Sue, I always had this secret. Right after Columbine happened, I kept thinking, what happened to those boys? I thought about Sue a lot and I felt like I was doing something wrong by thinking about her that you know we were supposed to hate her and direct our anger anywhere because we were all just desperate to direct our anger somewhere. It was about four months later that she responded. And I said, would you be comfortable meeting for coffee? And she said, if you're comfortable, I'm comfortable. And so I went to meet her and I'm sitting in the parking lot thinking, what in the hell am I doing? I'm about to have coffee with a woman whose son murdered my dad what is the gain here? And I was embarrassed, like I didn't tell anybody because I, I knew that there would be people that wouldn't understand. And not that I even understood at that moment. And so I go in to have coffee with her and her presence was so peaceful and she was so kind and so compassionate. And she's been working in suicide prevention since then. And I've been working in violence prevention, homicide prevention, if you will. Since that time as well, we had traveled a very similar path. And so when I think about how Dad encouraged people, he really loved those that were struggling and how to like help them get on a different path. And so it's almost like I'm carrying on his legacy by helping people see a different path. And most of my clients don't know about my connection.
2: And you reached out to Sue Klebold for me, asked if she'd like to be on the podcast, and she thoughtfully declined. But I would say a month later, it was a Sunday morning, and I was drinking my coffee, and I was just checking my emails, and I see it's from Sue Klebold. It took me a minute to open it, and it was the most thoughtful response that I've ever received from anyone and it was what I needed in, in my healing journey. I've had a shift in my feelings because I wanted to blame somebody. For years and years I wanted to blame their parents. Blame the killer's parents. I wanted to blame the SWAT team. I wanted to blame law enforcement. I wanted to blame the trench coat mafia. You know, I, I wanted I had so much anger and needed to direct that. But then I read Sue's book and I learned about who she is and who her family was and who Dylan was. And I'm not diminishing what he did at any point, but I compartmentalized that she's, you know, she she was a mom and she lost her son. I think
8: that's also one of the bigger shifts is that as the people that experienced, you know, the horrific things at Columbine once people started becoming parents they were more open to understanding her journey because we all believe that we can control our children right and yeah. then we have them and we realize it's
2: not going so well yeah. for me right now
8: <laughs> yeah so when that happens we say oh wait a minute so we can influence them and we can love them and we can guide them but we cannot stop them
2: we cannot stop them and just learning like what a loving family she had and that she created this loving environment and was such a great mom. I mean, I was like, man, I wanna be like Sue. Like She was a a great mom, like really thoughtful and, and wonderful mother. And who am I to say that this is her fault? It's not her fault. And I've come to that realization.
8: And isn't it an incredible journey to think over the last 21 years that that's where you are. Yeah. I never expected in a million years to have that type of relationship and for you to have that kind of response. And I think that this is where there's hope in the world is when people are open to things that may feel so wrong initially, you know, like giving somebody an opportunity who's committed a crime or hearing a family that maybe you've got a judgment about and it gives you an opportunity to yeah, to, to, grow. to grow and to let people heal.
2: Yeah. I needed that so bad, mm-hmm. not in a place of anger, yeah. but in a place of love and in a place of peace. I think that is where I'm at right now in my journey. And that feels really freaking good.
0: Well, Connie Sanders, she really is something I mean to have come through her father's murder this way and to have used it as you have to improve other people's lives is just it's incredible. What are you thinking about right now after listening to that?
2: You know it's so hard to to think about coach suffering that is the hardest part is is to hear that he suffered, yeah. And to hear her story and to hear her family's story, it was tremendously difficult. This one was really really hard to hear what happened to him, and that he had his wallet in his back pocket, and they had to identify him and But you know, with confronting Columbine and with doing this i I've had to go there. I've had to go there
0: so Sue Klebold. I find that when, and I, I'm sure you'll agree, when something bad happens, we all need someone to blame. So I think that's probably one of the reasons why we look to the parents to say, it's, that's what happened. Instead of thinking, it is possible that people are just born what they are and that there's nothing you can do to stop it.
2: They were evil.
0: They were just evil.
2: They acted together. But I think that Sue Klebold's son, he had some depressive disorders and like he did have something mentally going on. And I'm not, you know, justifying his actions by by any means.
0: No, of course not.
2: But, you know, reading his diaries, looking at both of the perpetrators, you start to get into their psyche or you start to try to get into their psyche as to what the hell they were thinking.
0: So do you mind um, sharing the email that you got from Sue Klebold?
2: I would love to share the email that Sue sent to me. Hello, Amy. Connie Sanders forwarded your email message. Thank you for offering to include me in your audio project to explore the long-term impacts of the Columbine tragedy. It is very touching to be asked, and I am deeply grateful. I am sorry for any losses you or your loved one experienced as a result of the shootings. I hope your work brings you the peace and closure you deserve. Though I applaud your efforts, I don't feel that I can participate in local events because I know that my presence can be re-traumatizing for others, just as being in the presence of those affected by my son's actions is still traumatizing for me. If referencing my perspective would be helpful, you might find something you could use in my TED Talk or in the book, A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. Nothing can ever tell the whole story, but I tried to speak my truth through both of these venues. Best of luck and many thanks, Sue Klebold.
0: Well, what did that do for you?
2: I want to thank her for the work she's doing with suicide prevention. I think that is something that is really powerful, and that's how she copes. I just, I want to tell her that it's not her fault, that this isn't her fault, and I don't blame her. And I did blame her for a very long time. I blame both the parents for a very long time. I mean, how do you not know what your kids are doing in their garages or in, in the garage or in, in the basement? You know, in their instance, they were building pipe bombs. So I still struggle with that. But after reading her book and this message she gave to me, I have come to the realization that this wasn't her fault this was an act of violence that her son committed but i know with sue and in my journey i have to forgive i'm not forgiving dylan for what he did that's never been a part of my journey but i have to come full circle and be okay with my decision and my feelings on the next episode of Confronting Columbine.
3: What everybody knows about Columbine is that two loner outcast goths from the Trenchcoat Mafia went into their school that morning to avenge the Trenchcoat Mafia being bullied for years and targeted the jocks to kill them as a revenge. Yeah. And every single thing I just said is wrong.
2: For more information on the Rebels Project or to donate, please go to therebelsproject.org and see me there. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at Confronting Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussion from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Confronting Columbine was produced and hosted by me, Amy Over. Executive produced by Nancy Glass, Andrea Gunning, Ben Fetterman, and Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark. Associate producer, Trey Morgan. Editing, by senior audio editor Matt Dovecchio, editor Drew Wallace, and Dean Welsh, with production assistance from Megan Paisley and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kristen Melcuri, Pete Ward, and Natalie Thomas. Music and original composition by My Music. Confronting Columbine was produced by Glass Entertainment Group, Glass Podcasts in partnership with Wondery.
3: Hey, everybody, I'm James. I'm Jimmy. You definitely want to hear us on Small Town Murder, our crazy podcast about murder in small towns. Pretty yeah. aptly named. And what do you think of when you think of a small town? Oh, um, uh, terrifying. A diner? terrifying murder, exactly, yeah. so you know <laughs> and that's what we have for you, chock full of it every week, we have two episodes a week, one regular on Thursdays and one express a little shorter episode on Fridays where you're going to hear the craziest stories from small towns, we'll talk a little bit about the town to give you a setting yeah. and then we'll get into some of the wildest, craziest murders you've ever heard of, mixing in some humor here yeah. to cut the darkness, keep it light, just a little bit and keep it light, you definitely want to join us there twice a week, you can't can't be to come and join a Small Town Murder podcast. Subscribe today. Follow Small Town Murder on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Small Town Murder early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus.